Welcome to Decoding Hate. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. In this final episode, we look at how approaches to fighting hate speech have evolved, from changing narratives within internet intermediaries to calls for stronger regulation from states and regional organizations. And we dig into the most recent effort to combat hate speech and illegal content online, the proposed Digital Services Act. I sat down with Rika Frank Jorgensen and Molly Land. Rika is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for Human Rights and author of Human Rights in the Age of Platforms. Rika is also on the advisory board of Ranking Digital Rights, an international project that monitors internet companies' human rights performance. Molly is the Catherine Rohrbach Professor of Law and Human Rights at the University of Connecticut Law School and author of New Technologies for Human Rights Law and Practice. She previously served as an alternate on the board of directors of the Global Network Initiative, a multi-stakeholder platform working to protect and advance freedom of expression and privacy rights in the information and communications tech industry. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. So I'll start with you, Rika, and your research project, which looked at the quote-unquote commercialized public sphere. So can you tell us how that project came about and what it entailed? So the project started back in, in 2015. And um, back then, we didn't talk as much about tech giants uh, and their role in society as we do now. Um, but we did talk some about it. And I had been I'd been working on the human rights implications of, of some of these big corporations, Facebook and Google in particular, here at the Danish Human Rights Institute. I was increasingly getting the sense that there was something fundamental at stake with how these big corporations influenced our ability as citizens to enjoy fundamental human rights, the right to freedom of expression, freedom of information, the right not to be discriminated against, the right to associate, you know, the right to gain knowledge, knowledge to, to associate and, and mobilize around specific topics. So uh, I applied for this research project where the aim was to get in 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 touch uh, with some of, of the people within these companies and sort of like an anthropologist, social anthropologist, you could say, talk to the people and try to understand how they saw their their role in relation to, to human rights from an insider perspective and to, to try to tease out some of the core narratives um, at stake. So that was that was really really my idea to get an an insider's view on how people within these corporations saw their role vis-a-vis -vis human rights, and then of course also try to theorize that in terms of what are the wider social and democratic implications of having private companies with such a great role gatekeeping and controlling the the spaces where so many communicative and, and social uh, functions play out today. I know that 
you're interested in exploring how these companies see themselves and and their role in enabling freedom of expression and you know limiting it to only a certain extent. So can you talk about some of those narratives that you discovered during the course of your research project? So, I mean, it was Google and, and Facebook I, where I spoke to people. And of course, they are giant corporations. And I spoke to around 22 in total. So, of course, I can't claim that this is the narratives. But, I mean, I can say something on, on some of the common themes that came out from these 22 interviews that I conducted there were four or five things that I, that I really noted in, in relation to, to human rights. The first thing is that they, they saw themselves as strong promoters of human rights. Practically all the people I spoke to emphasized that they felt that the services they were providing were important for people's ability to exercise their human rights in particularly uh, people's ability to, to reach information and to express themselves. So that was like the first thing, that they see a, a core linkage between the service they provide and enabling human rights, and, and that that human rights framing is particularly linked to freedom of expression and freedom, and freedom of information. The second thing was that they very much presented themselves as sort of neutral products or platforms. They didn't, they wouldn't talk about themselves as someone that had a, a huge role in relation to content moderation, for example, referring back to what, what Molly was, was just explaining. I mean, of course, both of them uh, do tons of content moderation, but when presenting themselves, it was very much that it was this, yeah, it was this platform, technically neutral platform that they provided and that users could then use to exercise certain rights. And here, it was also a key message that the companies saw themselves as siding with the users in the sense that they had many, many examples where they would, in a specific national context, protect the users from repressive governments. So when we talked about human rights violations, it was never the potential violation by company practice. It was always the potential violation by the state and where the company, either Facebook or Google, would be protecting users from overreach from states. So that was like a core narrative that human rights violations is something that governments does to the user and not something that's related to the way that these companies do their, their business and, and, and has to have designed their, their business model. Also, when, when we talked about uh, privacy, the right to privacy, uh, they would stress that the right to privacy is extremely important for their services and they have done tons of things to facilitate privacy and they would mention all kinds of, of features within the, in the platform that you can, that you can use to en enhance your, your privacy when using the service and, and tons of different procedural controls when developing new products and, and developing new versions of those products, all centered around privacy and data protection. But what really struck me there was that it was always privacy 
uh, in the sense of user control within the platform. So my my privacy as a user when I use a specific uh, Google or a Facebook service would be that I could limit what other what I shared with other users within the platform, but not what I shared with the platform itself. So it's always a sort of um, front stage privacy control between me and other users, but never a limit on the data collection per se that that is going on as part of using the the service. That's sort of the, that was sort of the the default setting that we were talking about privacy within. And lastly, the fourth thing that I want to mention was this emphasis on the companies as uh, co-regulators, someone that assists the governments and especially the, the democratic friendly governments in um, keeping the platform safe and countering illegal content within the platforms. And where this, the companies uh, presented themselves and saw themselves as having a really important role side by side with governments in in ensuring that illegal content is is removed from the platform so in short the companies as co-regulators side by side with the governments privacy as user control within the platform but not questioning the business model as such uh, human rights protection is protection by the platform against repressive governments so that there is alignment between user and company interest and the platforms presented as, as neutral products committed to human rights and freedom of expression in particular. And I love that quote of the commercialized public sphere, I think really does capture it because of course we've gone from the marketplace being a, a physical space to a marketplace that is largely happening online. And as you say, is governed by these private corporations. I'm wondering, in the time since you released your book, Rike, which of course Molly had a chapter in as well, have you witnessed a change in these kinds of narratives from particularly Facebook and Google? I would say that, I mean, yeah, the narratives is changing in the sense that there is a, a much stronger acknowledgement of the potential harm that the platforms can do to their users. I still don't hear them say that, you know, I still don't hear a really critical engagement with the business model as such. But if we listen to, for example, some of the, some of the US or, or European hearings that there have been on these topics, then, you know, there are, it's more language around, we don't have enough information and we are still working on getting this right. This is really complicated. China is often mentioned as a sort of common enemy. So I would say a greater acknowledgement of this being very complicated, of the potential harm, and of the role that platform increasingly uh, needs to play in order to get this right, but still not very much critical self-reflection to the really core of the business model, I would say. I definitely think that uh platforms have not engaged with the impacts, uh, the human rights impacts that their business model has. It, there are certain kinds of assumptions and 
certain kinds of of a, sort of a certain kind of baseline that's embedded in their the the product and the services that they that they offer and until they begin to examine the way in which those baseline assumptions affect human rights i don't think that i think that they're just tinkering on the surface i think that they're just talking about should we allow this word or that word when in fact the very thing that they're selling has a, a social value right it it is a, a matter of public interest and to commercialize it has really broad human rights impacts that I think we haven't um, that we haven't fully uh, explored. It's like we're doing this big experiment on us. Like, what happens if we move all of our speech <laughs> to a platform that's going to package it and sell it to the highest bidder? Uh, along, and, and our personal data, uh, Shoshana talks about surveillance capitalism, right? So this is a real core question that I think the platforms need to engage in. And right now they're on the defensive. They're tinkering at the edges, and they're not really asking the hard questions. Molly, one of the things that you have written a lot about, too, is content moderation specifically. Um, and you've called it a human rights dilemma. Yes. Yeah, so the dilemma is human rights law provides a great set of standards, but they don't necessarily apply to private actors. And we might not want them to apply in the same way either. So governments, when they regulate speech, can limit uh, uh, expression, but governments don't have commercial interests. So if a corporation is doing that function and they have these commercial interests, can they limit speech, uh, you know, in, in order to meet those, those commercial or business interests? So the dilemma stems not from sort of the formal limitations of international law. So part of this is, right, international law doesn't bind corporate actors. I'm less worried about that formality because, uh, as many have argued, David Kay, among, among others, the formality of it doesn't matter if platforms can simply adopt human rights standards for pragmatic or ethical reasons. Again, it, it, you know, human rights law makes sense as a standard, and it's a good baseline, and platforms should want to respect their users' rights. The dilemma, I think, stems from the fact that one cannot simply substitute a private actor in this context because private actors have different interests. The way in which speech is regulated online has to differ from how it's regulated offline. So I think that there's a sense that we can solve this simply by applying human rights standards. But what do you do if a platform says, I want to take this speech down because it's inconsistent with my brand, right? A government could not do that, right? A government has to take all comers. And a platform as a private actor is a different kind of actor. And I think we have to grapple with what it means to apply human rights standards in this new context. I love that. And I think the other thing that I that really does keep me up at night when I start thinking too much about it is that I think right now there's been such a focus at the individual level about, I mean, and to Rick's point about, you know, as between users, how much privacy you can have or individual speech, how much can be allowed, how much can be pulled back, but these are now public spaces, right? I, I think, Rika, your your line is about these are social infrastructures. These aren't just platforms that, you know, as I remember MySpace, when you could just go on and, you know, post to your three friends on there. These are now really core platforms. And I don't think we've maybe looked yet in depth at the, the public impacts and the impacts on democratic discourse, other than in the in the context of, you know, the Myanmar examples, and as you say, the, the examples of, you know, pointing to China. So I want to focus in a little bit, because this podcast, of course, is looking at hate speech specifically. And Molly, one of the things that you have 
written a lot about, and, and I know Ricka has too, so please feel free to jump in, but is this notion that hate speech policies are both, on one hand, overbroad and also under-inclusive. And I'm hoping you can explain kind of what you what you mean by that and also maybe why you think that is. Is it just a pressure from the outside that they're trying to do too much or where does that dilemma come from? When we translate speech regulation to the online environment, we um, lose essential pieces of the equation that render the rules that platforms are developing, right, both very, very broad and also very, very narrow in certain ways. So let me give a few examples. The rules are, are overbroad because they're catching way more speech than they need to. So example, for example, Facebook prohibits any attack, um, such as a statement of inferiority based on a protected characteristic such as race, race, um, ethnicity, gender, disability. Now, some of the content that meets that definition would be illegal also under national law, but some of it is just simply going to be uncomfortable or offensive or, or reprehensible, but it, it is still perhaps protected speech and should not be taken down that broadly, right? I think companies, by passing these very broad standards that are focused on the content of the words, right, rather than the context in which they're used, they're taking everything down without adequately distinguishing between speech that's really dangerous, right? Maybe it's, it's speech that's put forward by an authority figure in a context where there's low rule of law against a vulnerable population, uh, like a human rights activist. That's the speech we should be worried about. So by defining it solely uh, based on the content of the language, they're casting a very broad net. So what I argue is they should be focusing on context, not content, right? They should be looking at the context in which the speech occurs. These very broad laws, uh, these very broad rules that the platforms have discovered are under-inclusive because they don't look at these other contextual factors. So they don't consider, you know, where is this speech happening? Is it happening in an established democracy or in a, a place that's struggling with rule of law. The rules are easily avoided by state-sponsored trolls who might use euphemisms or coded speech. They might use images rather than, uh, than words. They might post misinformation. So in the in genocide against the Rohingya, the government was using misinformation about attacks allegedly perpetrated by the Rohingya, which were not caught by filters that are just looking for certain words. So by focusing on content and not context, the platforms are just sweeping in anything that mentions certain words, but they're neglecting to actually focus in on the language that is most pernicious and most harmful and most dangerous. Yeah, just, I mean, we're discussing it a lot in, in, in Europe at the moment and, and, and in Denmark also in particular, because we have proposals for new legislation coming up. And I think the challenge is really we want them on we want on the one hand we want the illegal content down fast and effective and with due process uh, so you know the boundaries of freedom of expression freedom of expression has boundaries and that's the that's the content that's illegal after national law we want that content down at the same time we want the protected content to stay up and we want both of these two things carried out uh, with more or less 
big role played by private companies. So, I mean, I think it will be really interesting to see how that plays out with the new Digital Services Act proposal that just came out. Because what they say there is that they still give the private companies the role of deciding on the equality of the content, of, ta of taking the decision of taking the illegal content down fast, but they strengthen the requirement on the companies to explain why they have taken it down, to establish complaint mechanisms, and to, to ensure some level of public oversight. So it's basically illegal content has to come down fast, but they have to explain why uh, such a decision was taken in, in relation to specific content. But then in relation to legal content, that they take down due to their their community standards. There, there is also strengthened requirement on being able to explain why a specific piece of content was removed and to have the user basic both to notify the user but also give possibilities for for complaint. So that's actually a quite a huge requirement on the platform that follows some of the previous discussions that has been put forward also by David Kay that, that Molly mentions. But when we imagine that at scale, that every time a piece of content is taken down, a user shall have the possibility to complain, the company is obliged to explain and to provide notice to the specific users. That's really, I mean, I'm still grasping with understanding how that can play out in, in practice. If I could just build on that, I actually think we need to move away from thinking about content. So this is one place where I might push back a little bit on, on what Ricky just said, which is that the a focus on illegal content, I think, takes us down a path of individually adjudicating each piece of, uh, of content that's on, online, which I think is where the, the DSA is going. And I think that at scale, that is, it's a huge problem. The reason why I think we need to focus less on content and more on processes is because the processes are actually the place where we want to try to distinguish between what's really harmful and not. It's the processes that we have in place offline so that helps us ensure that speech regulation is proportional. So for example, when we have a, a, somebody using a racial slur um, in a newspaper article or shouting it on a street corner. Our processes help us sort through and filter when that content is harmful and when it is maybe offensive, but not dangerous. So we have police officers, we have prosecutors, and we have judges. We have all of that discretion and that human judgment built into the system, right, to determine and we have appeals and we have the European Court of Human Rights, right? So we have all of these instances where we can get human judgment injected into the system to be able to say, this is offensive but harmless, but this piece of content is really dangerous because of the context in which it occurs. If we try to shift that system to a privatized platform operating at scale where people have you know, just a second or two to make a decision about whether this is illegal or not, where some of this is also done by automated systems, 
the result is going to be that we just take down all racial slurs. And I have to emphasize, <laughs> you know, maybe there's a world in which we want that to happen, but human rights law does not require all racial slurs to be removed. There may be instances where that's going to be protected speech. And so I would argue that the direction the DSA is going is problematic for that reason, because it's still looking at at content. And I think instead, government should be asking companies to build systems that allow them to incorporate discretion at scale, right? That allow them to be transparent, to solicit participation from affected communities, to build communication channels for people who are under threat to contact them, which we don't currently have. There's no way for a human rights defender who's threatened in Guatemala to reach out to Facebook and say, I'm being harassed and I'm, I'm, I fear for my life. So I think the DSA is, is trying very hard. So Europe is trying very hard. And I think it's to be commended for the time and effort it's putting in, but I think it's going down the wrong path. I think they should be focusing on what systems are the, the companies establishing to try to do this right, rather than let's just take down stuff that might formally meet, might formally constitute illegal speech without realizing that actually there's a lot of discretion that we build into the offline version of this. It's a very interesting dilemma, I suppose. And the scale is is part of what makes it so problematic, of course, because if it is happening in the real world, someone might be told you can't distribute that flyer anymore in your community or in, in the lockers at school, which is a case before the European court about homophobic leaflets. Um, and so you can you can shut that down and it, it's relatively small scale, but of course, I think Facebook took down 22.1 million pieces of content in a three-month window this year, and that wasn't even perhaps the highest end. So why should we be so concerned, I suppose, about now the added difficulty of algorithms here? Well, when you're bringing automation to this complexity, the whole thing just scales in terms of potential problem, because then you can automate overbroad decisions and you can automate <laughs> underbroad decision and you can automate bias. So you basically, with, with automation, you basically potentially scale the problems that you have already uh, at smaller scale when we just do it, you know, by a human. So that's why, that's why it's uh, potentially uh, so dangerous for human rights. And I think actually, Molly, I think it's really interesting what you said about, you know, content and context, because I think the commission is actually trying to build in some procedural safeguards and actually also safeguards on the side of freedom of expression that they haven't had previously. So, I mean, not that it's perfect at all, but freedom of expression and concern for freedom of expression and safeguards for freedom of expression is in the proposal now at an extent that I've never seen before in content regulation policies from the EU. So that's really, I mean, that's a good thing. And also a critical stance to the way that these automation tools can be used and their potential impact. And so, for example, one of the new obligations is that you have to conduct systematic human rights impact assessment for any of these services and products. And I mean, that's a way to integrating due diligence and to try to integrate due diligence at a whole range of different steps 
in the companies that deal with all this content daily at scale. So to have that sort of due diligence thought through in the different levels of decision-making within the companies is, is one of the things that, that's in there and I think is absolutely necessary. But um, yeah, it's, it's not easy and it's not easy for the companies either. Yeah, I think, I think due diligence is really the way to go. I, I think, you know, one of the principles of co-regulation is knowing what things companies can do better than governments and what things governments do better than companies, right? They each have sort of their, their areas of expertise. And I think in terms of building processes to distinguish between harmful and benign speech, offensive but benign speech, I'm not sure governments know enough about how the platforms work and what the possibilities are to be able to really mandate particular processes. But stepping back and saying, well, we don't care how you do it, really, as long as you do it and you show us that you did it and we can verify right, um, that you've done it, which is what a requirement of due diligence does, is, I think, the way to go. And this allows companies to experiment and really put their considerable resources to try to solve this problem. So this is why I think the, the part that I disagree with is this emphasis on sort of individual recourse, because I think it not only will be difficult, if not uh, impossible at scale, but it introduces an additional lever or mechanism that, you know, in my research, I'm really focused on state-sponsored trolls and, you know, restrictive governments that use this to suppress dissent. Building these kinds of systems can also be gamed by those, you know, by malicious actors. And so I think it's important not to sort of introduce new problems. Um, and uh, I think a, a slightly less granular approach, right? Rather than prescribing what kinds of systems the company should have, I think the, the regulatory approach should be to require them to show their work, right? But not to really dictate what that work should be. And this is the approach of due diligence. Yeah. I think one, one thing that still worries me a lot and that is also still there full scale is this thing that it's private companies that have to take decisions on illegality. In, in an ideal world, it would be the court, right? But we have, because of the scale, because of the governing structure in the online domain, we sort of accept that it's private companies that take these millions of decisions on whether a piece of content in Denmark violates the Danish penal code and therefore has to go down. That, I think, is still something I don't really like from a fundamental rule of law perspective, that we invest all this power with these giants at the same time that we think they have too much power and we're trying to push back on that power. But at the same time, we, we don't really challenge that underlying logic of having them somehow both policing and judging in this online domain. I think it's a really interesting point that we've just accepted because I suppose for lack of a better option at this point, right, the train has left the station. And so we've sort of, we're starting from the premise that they will have to not only define what is illegal, but then also enforce on their platforms, the requirements that are imposed on them. I mean, I, th I think I'm, I'm less, somewhat less worried about that because 
you know, we put obligations on private companies in a lot of different contexts to try to determine what the law is and act accordingly. I think the place where I get worried is when there's not enough guidance provided to those uh, companies in an area that's so vital to the public good, right? That if a government can provide some guidance to companies about how they should be making that decision, I think I would feel much more comfortable. The one thing that I would add, though, Rike, is with respect to removal of illegal speech, in the offline context, we don't eliminate all instances of illegal speech, right? There are lots of instances where we in, you know, people in conversations with their friends in private spaces are, are saying things that truly are illegal. The things that go up to courts for adjudication are only the sort of worst cases, the most dangerous cases, the cases of illegal speech where they are widely disseminated, where people can see them, where they have influence, where they have impact. So I think what's missing from regulatory approaches is a requirement of, of some kind of filtering, right? I would like to see more government oversight, but not of every single, and I'll, I'll use this example again, uncomfortable, offensive, but protected speech. Because we don't do that in the offline context either. There's discretion built in so that we're really targeting only the worst speech. So I would say Facebook you know, and, and Twitter should not necessarily take down every instance of, of unlawful content. They should take down instances of unlawful content where the surrounding circumstances indicate that that unlawful content could have an impact. Right. So it's one thing if it's my cousin, Bob, who, you know, says something really offensive on his Facebook page. We don't really care about that because, you know, that's just Bob. Right? Um, but we care if it's the president of the United States. Right. Who's saying that. And we particularly care if it's a general in Myanmar. Right. In a, you know, in a country, low rule of law, vulnerable population. Right. So, again, if we treat all instances of legal speech the same. It's not what we do in real life, right? And I think it's also, it's a scale problem. No, it should definitely not be more restricted than in, in, in real life. Uh, of course not. And they should only do it upon notice. I mean, upon notice, then it's something that's in the public on one of their platforms. And there they then, then they act as judges. So for example, if there is an if there is someone speaking something that is allegedly uh, racist um, on the Danish Facebook page and a user report that, then they basically make the assessment that you would normally have via police investigation and then a court decision in Denmark with respect to how that is regulated in, in Danish penal code. And here we basically ask them to, to make that assessment and to take that content down if they think that this is a violation of the law in the country where it takes place. I think the other piece of this, perhaps, that gets at what you're talking about too, Molly, is that takedowns are one method of dealing with hate speech, but there are others. And I know that you've written about this, right? That this reactive approach might not be the one where we should be at least devoting all of our resources, right? There are things that we should probably be doing up until that point. 
I'd love to hear you talk about some of those more proactive measures to at least get at sort of the impacts and the effects, right? Not just individual pieces of of content, but to make it less accessible perhaps, or to at least affect its spread. So could you talk through some of those proactive measures you've called for? Yeah. So the the question of remedy is also a place where I think governments can maybe take more guidance from human rights law, which is that there are potentially a variety of remedies for harmful speech and removal is not only the, should not be the only or even the primary remedy that's applied in the context of dangerous speech. Some of the things that governments might think about that have not been a topic of enough discussion include the question of business models that that Ricky was talking about, the design of the platform itself, the virality of the speech. So could we envision a system where particular speech that we think could have harmful effects, we introduce what's called friction, we slow it down, we make it less viral. And and I think this is already happening to some extent, Uh, but this would allow us to respond to the and and mitigate the harmful effects of speech without necessarily removing it all altogether. In the context of design of platforms, uh, I've written in one context that it would be great for platforms to to think about giving their users more visual cues that they're they're listeners, right? One of the psychological effects of <laughs> right the online space is that we forget that there are actually people on the receiving end of our speech. And in part, that is a function of how these platforms are designed. So I think platforms and and maybe even governments could think about what does a good environment look like for speech, an environment that promotes more responsible speech, that um, attends to the consequences of, of speech. And then in terms of the business model, are there ways in which we can think about the commercial context itself to increase competition? to make it easier for users to choose between platforms. I've heard again and again, I think Julian York actually was one of the (laughs) uh, first people um, who articulated this so clearly. With some platforms, we may not like their policies, but that's where all of our contacts are. That's where, you know, our professional contacts are are talking. That's where we need to be to uh, actually do this work. And so it is difficult to really make a choice to go somewhere else that may have rules that that we find more amenable to our values or principles. So we may want to leave Facebook, but we can't because there are network effects. Everybody we know is already there. So if we could have, you know, some people have have argued that we should um, have more of a protocol-based approach to platforms. So there are technological things that we could do to increase the competitive environment. I asked Rick and Molly about Facebook's oversight board created to help Facebook answer some of the most difficult questions around freedom of expression online. What to take down, what to leave up, and why. As of the end of January, the Oversight Board had released six decisions, three of which concerned hate speech. It's known as Facebook's Supreme Court, and it's about to release a decision on Facebook's indefinite suspension of President Trump's account following the riots at the U.S. Capitol. But is this the kind of oversight we want, or that the Digital Services Act envisions? To my mind, that's something quite different from the type of oversight we're talking about in the DSA, for example, because it's like, you know, it's like an internal advisory group, or it's it's an advisory group that Facebook have appointed. 
to help them with whatever they decide that they should help them with. Whereas the type of, of oversight that's mentioned in the DSA is, is uh, from public authorities. So that's, you know, it's a completely different ball game. It's a group of people that they have appointed to, to assist them in, in their business decisions. You know, I think that that's a, it's an important point because it's not really providing oversight of the, the kind that governments are seeking to, to achieve with the regulation. At the same time, I think the oversight board could be a useful step in developing a better understanding of what human rights law requires in this context. So one of the challenges is that there's not a lot of uh, clarity in human rights law about where precisely the line is between protected and unlawful speech. It's very context-driven and uh, it's done case by case in each country to some extent, you know, does it a little bit differently. So, you know, if we have a body that's that's really independent, that um, has uh, representatives from a broad cross-section of, you know, of expertise, geographic balance, and I think that they've done a a great job in, in selecting people for the board. And if the, the board takes cases that are really representative of the kinds of problems that are, are faced by people on the platforms around the world, and not just, you know, in the US and the EU, which tends to be a, really the focus uh, of a lot of these discussions, if they take globally representative cases, there's really a lot of hard questions out there. I think that could be a, you know, it could be a real contribution to have a, a group of folks think hard about what human rights law requires. And I do think it should be within the context of human rights law. It can't just be Facebook law. I don't think Facebook law has <laughs> has the legitimacy and, and authority that human rights law has. And, you know, so I there's a lot of ifs in that. <laughs> but if some or all of those ifs come true, I think I think it could be a good step forward in providing more clarity about what's what's allowed and what's not. But I think your your final point, Molly, was really the crucial point, because as I understand it, the baseline for that group of people is not human rights law, but it's the community standards of Facebook. And, and that's precisely the challenge, I think, that it's not a group of human rights lawyers sitting there. Yeah, I think for the moment, it's not clear that the Oversight Board will work within human rights law, um, but I think it is not excluded. So I think I'm still hopeful. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm hopeful too. And, you know, they are, many of them are, of course, quite renowned constitutional law and human rights law scholars and things. So, you know, you would hope that they wouldn't completely take off that hat, I suppose, when they are doing this work. But uh, it does, of course, remain to be seen. As, as I said, I think one of the reasons this is such a fascinating area is that it is constantly evolving at perhaps too rapid a pace sometimes, and, and in other respects, not fast enough. So for 2021, do we have any predictions of, of where things might lead? Well, we'll, be, we'll probably be debating various aspects of how to regulate uh, platforms way into, you know, 2021, 2022, before we even have anything <laughs> that is uh, that has effect. Um, it'll probably take a couple of years, but for sure that there's, I would say that the discussion has moved to a different level now. And there is something more concrete on the table in Europe uh, that we can discuss 
just as just like we did with the with the GDPR, and that will have an impact way beyond Europe because it will inform discussions about these issues around the globe. Uh, the one thing that I would I would add that I'm keeping an eye on um, is the development of uh, or the the emergence of uh, alternative platforms. So uh, Parler, for example, as an alternative to Facebook, um, I think it will be interesting to see. Um, yeah, we need to look at the whole ecosystem of of information, and I think uh, rather than just focusing on on you know Twitter and Facebook. I think we need to look at the broad context, and I think that there's there's movement on the part of users, and uh, I'm I'm very interested in, in where that goes um, in the future. I think the parlor example is so interesting because it's quite new, but I wonder what impact it will have on public discourse, especially if you have, I think what happened at least initially from what I've read about it is you had a lot of flight from Facebook because of perceptions that it was too left-leaning. So it will be interesting to see if that sort of carries and if that results in quite a stunted discourse, I think, you know, like what's happening on Parler versus what's happening on Facebook and other platforms um, and whether or not they're just ships passing in the night or whether or not they're their own echo chambers and and kind of filter bubbles. I think that will be very interesting. I mean, I mean, there is a real risk um, as there's, you know, been for some time of fragmentation and polarization and echo chambers. But the thing that I, I like about the idea of having more platforms in the mix um, is that it enables users to make choices about what rules they want to have govern their speech. One of the things that I think is most problematic, and we've already talked about this, is the lack of transparency, um, and not just to governments, but to users, about how their speech is being moderated, curated, and commodified. And I think that if there were a movement towards, you know, there's this platform and, you know, you'll just see puppies and kittens and there's this other platform and you're going to get political speech. The problem is, is that not everybody can be on, on all of these platforms, but I think empowering users to have more say in the rules that govern the, the speech communities that they're a part of would be a positive development. Um, if only, I think, to make people aware of the extent to which their information environments are are being curated and, and manipulated, frankly. I think we sort of tend to see these speech platforms as um, kind of natural, uh, you know, manifestations of the world. And they're, they're actually, you know, tailored for us <laughs> quite uh, narrowly. And I'd love to be able to switch back and forth and see what um, more people on the you know, on the other end of the political spectrum for me are saying. And seeing, I think your point is exactly right of what news you are receiving and, and what worldview you're being fed is is something that we need to know more about. And ideally, we would know a lot more about, I think. Yeah. And this goes back to, to what Ricky said in the beginning about platforms see themselves as sort of neutral arbiters of the truth. And they're not. They are, you know, they're pursuing their, their interests. Um, and we're just along for the ride. And I, I really, really wish that we um, were able to see much more of the inner workings. Really, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time today. I think this is lots of food for thought. So thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. In this series, we did a deep dive into content moderation and the fight against hate speech. From the rise of internet platforms to the changed role of the state, from the flaws in AI to the need for community-based and user-led solutions. 
We live in an increasingly digital age, and powerful actors like Facebook, Twitter, and Google have become the new gatekeepers, shaping what we can share and see. I hope these episodes have sparked some conversations about the changes you'd like to see, or even better, create, in this new digital era. My thanks to Ricka Frank Jorgensen and Professor Molly Land for their insights, and to the OSCE representative on freedom of the media for the funding which made this series possible. Dan Rekka wrote and performed the music for this series. For more on today's topics, including links to Rika and Molly's books, and to leave your comments and reflections, visit our website, decodinghatepod.com. For Decoding Hate, I'm Katie Pentney. Thank you for listening. Thank you.